morning, everyone. I think Ken wants to run some tests on me up here first. You got me, Ken? Okay. Um, just before we pray, my, my wife, wife just asked me to remind everyone that we have the potluck today and that uh, any new visitors are more than welcome to stay and enjoy. In fact, we would encourage you to stay so that we can get to know you a bit better. Um, okay, so before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, come to you this morning, um, obviously somewhat nervous, Lord, and I just ask for your help, for your strength, Lord, help me to remain calm and be patient and clear, Lord, I ask that uh, your word and your passages speak to the hearts of those listening today, and Lord, hopefully something new can be gleaned or a deeper aspect of you can be grasped this morning through the work of your spirit. And so we ask this all in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, first of all, I would like to thank you and commiserate with you this morning. Um, I'm thanking you for the opportunity to preach for the first time ever, and I'm commiserating with you because this is the first time that I am preaching. As such, I ask for your grace and your patience as I provide you the opportunity to show fruit of the Spirit. I am glad to be of service to you. Okay. As some of you may know, my wife Lisa and I both love to travel, and I've always enjoyed history and especially the Old Testament. So it's only appropriate that my first sermon would begin with you joining me in traveling back in time to 589 BC in an obscure city named Tyre. Back in those days, Tyre was a thriving city nation on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and located inside modern-day Lebanon. Tyre was a major city in the Phoenician seafaring empire, that traded all throughout the Mediterranean Sea, so much so that it in fact also founded the, the city of Carthage, which Rome warred against centuries later. We start with you imagining yourself as a successful pagan merchant in Tyre, possibly from a trading dynasty in the Phoenician seafaring empire. The day is late December, 589 BC, there are rumors of war a hundred miles south at Jerusalem, but there are always rumors of war. Tyre has stood as a dominant trading city since at least the times of King Solomon some 500 years earlier. You are planning your future, plans to continue to amass wealth, enjoy life, and prosper. But everything is about to change, and you don't even know it. About 500 miles due east of you, someone is speaking to an exiled, homebound Jewish priest in Babylon who is mourning the recent death of his beloved wife in apparent indifference. Our passage this morning is Ezekiel 26, 1 through 6. Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me. I shall be filled 
now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you, as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nations. Also her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. And with these words, the Lord initiates the revealing of his sovereign plan for the wealthy city nation of Tyre. As the imagined Tyrian, you may well ask, why does the God of the Jews care about me? A believing Jewish exile in Babylon asks, Lord, why are you bothering about Tyre? Jerusalem is in trouble. We as present-day Christians may very well ask, what relevance does some 2,500-year-old prophecy about a city have to do with me? And it is these whys that I would like to attempt to address today. And then hopefully in a couple of weeks, I can address the how, which is a different story. But as to the why, Paul actually gives us the overarching reason to us when recounting ancient Israel's behavior in the Old Testament. From 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Isaiah also clues us in, in Isaiah 66 too, where the Lord states, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. So let's see what we can glean from this ancient judgment. But before we can look at the selected passage, we need to be grounded in both the historical and literary context of the book of Ezekiel, where, when, and why the book is canon. To orient ourselves, we need to go back in time almost to the beginning and remind ourselves of a few key threads in the biblical narrative. Our first thread begins in Genesis 12, 1-3, where God calls Abraham from Chaldea, or Babylon, to go to Canaan, which will become the geographical nation Israel. Genesis 12, 1-3 reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, Babylon, and from your relatives and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those, and the, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Some key ideas for today are found in verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And also, in you, Abraham, all the families, the nations, of the earth shall, and notice the imperative here, not could, but shall, be blessed. The Lord then reiterates this to Isaac in Genesis 26, 4. 
I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. A couple of key points here. Notice the consistent and unchanging promise between Abraham and then to Isaac. Second, the plural descendants will bless the nations. In other words, this promise is not only pointing to the ultimate blessing in Jesus, but also to the nation of Israel that God established out of Egypt. Abraham believes God and becomes our guiding example for the ultimate supreme blessing to come in our Lord Jesus Christ about 2,000 years later. But this promise also relates to the intended role of Israel. This expectation of Israel is further unveiled about 500 years later in Exodus 19, when Moses on Mount Sinai is about to receive the Ten Commandments. God says in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And this is later expressly reinforced, for example, in Psalm 96.3. Tell of his glory among the nations, speaking to the nation Israel, his wonderful deeds amongst the people, amongst the people. Our first key thread then is Israel was called to be a light to the nations, a witness and an example of God's good ways. So how exactly did God plan to use Israel to be a light to the nations? Deuteronomy 28 and 29 summarize the conditional choice put before the nation Israel, which they accepted before the Lord. In summary, the Mosaic Covenant gave Israel a choice of either obeying God or being ex- and being ex- extremely blessed, or disobeying and being cursed or punished. Notice that this condition is specific to the Mosaic Covenant and not the Abrahamic Covenant. The promised blessings are beautifully summarized by this excerpt of the Lord talking to the nation Israel. But as you listen to this passage, I want you to think of the nation Israel over the millennia. And I hope you see the massive contrast between the blessings and the curses. This is just an extract of the blessings from Deuteronomy 28, 7 through 13. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the offspring of your body, 
and in the offspring of your beast, and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore, so your fathers swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you only will be above, and you will not be underneath. If you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully. And notice how this blessing reinforces and integrates with and expands our first thread of Israel being a light to the nations. The Lord wanted to bless Israel so much that they would simply stand out. A beacon of prosperity and peace. This blessing would make Israel the envy of the nations. And they, the nations, would stream to Israel to see and taste that the Lord is good. In essence, the Lord is saying to Israel, If you obey me, I will bless you so much spiritually and physically that all the nations around you will be jealous and will want to come to know me. An important question then follows. How would the Lord manifest or symbolize that his blessings were from him and him alone? In other words, the blessings were not just lucky happenstance for Israel or derived from Israel's own strength, were they? The the short answer is that he would be at the center of all Israel's government, society, and day-to-day life. The books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus clearly show how the entire society was to be wrapped up in the Lord. But the ultimate expression of his centrality to the nation was manifested in his glory coming down from heaven and residing with the nation, as first shown in Exodus 40. Verses 17 through 32 describe the tent of meeting being erected and the ark of the covenant being installed inside the tent and the utensils and bales being set up. And then in verse 33 following, it reads, He, Moses, erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons would set out, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. And so the book of Exodus ends with a significant and profound punchline. In judgment of sin, man was expelled from Eden and God's physical presence in the world. But now, God's glory has come down to dwell and reside physically with man, and in particular Israel. God is working. Just pause and reflect on the tangible presence of the Lord being visible day by day and night by night. The fire at night shining as light in the darkness to the nation. 
the reminder of God with us. This theme of God's glory being with Israel and fighting for Israel continues throughout Joshua and Judges in the stories of the ark. The sampling of these include the capturing of Jericho through the ark being marched around it seven times. The Lord allowing the Philistines to take the ark and thereby cursing the Philistines with tumors, so much so that the Philistines voluntarily give the ark back to Israel. The ark represented God's glory and physical presence among the Israelites. And God's glorious presence ultimately is reinforced and solidified with Solomon and the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, 1-3, which reads, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped, and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Do you see the similarities, strong similarities, between Exodus and Second Chronicles? Even with a few hundred years passing, passing between the two parallel events, the fire, the smoke, the inability of the people to enter into the Lord's presence? This, then, is another key thread. God dwelled amongst his people Israel in the temple, and this was represented through the first temple that Solomon built. And tying this back to our first thread of Israel being a light to the nations, we can expand and say that the temple represented the Lord's presence or glory in Israel to be the light that draws the nations to him through Israel's obedience. Does that sound familiar? It should. Jesus is the light shining in his temple that through his obedience to the Father draws all men to the Father. I think there's a lot more that could be expanded on here as it relates to us, our obedience and our, our witness. witness. But, but I'll, I'll leave that, that for more parable teachers. But I digress. Back to our background then. For the Jewish mind, the temple with God's glory present and the sacrificial system truly was a concrete, physical reminder of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. A massive source of hope and encouragement to a believer in those times. So much so, I couldn't really think of a relatable example for us today. Maybe the Vatican for the Roman Catholics? I'm not sure. However, a third idea in this paradigm that this paradigm hinged on, of course, is the obedience aspect. Obedience requires a lack of disobedience. And under the Mosaic Covenant, disobedience resulted in curses. In part, these curses of disobedience are found in Deuteronomy 28. I would recommend for those interested to read the curses of Deuteronomy and think of Israel's history. We just don't have time to do that this morning. Fortunately, though, these curses are summarized again in 2 Chronicles 7 once again at the dedication of the temple 
in verses 16 through 22. So this is, this is the Lord speaking to Solomon. So this is not Davidic covenant per se. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinance, ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given you. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. As for this house, which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them from the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore he has brought all this adversity on them. The consistency in this message is incredibly high over a period of hundreds of years, and at the same time, not surprising. The Lord is reinforcing, reminding, and reaffirming his Mosaic covenant with the nation on the same day that his glory fills the new temple. It's almost as if this is the proper inauguration of the nation. And so now the stage is set for Israel. Israel is established in the land and called to be a light to the nations. Israel, through obedience, would receive incredible blessing from the Lord and in turn bless the nations and draw them to the Lord. And this would be achieved through the Lord's glory dwelling within the nation of Israel in the temple. The stage is set. Everything is primed. Israel just simply needs to obey. It should be easy, right? Simply trust and obey. There's no other way. But we know better, don't we? Initially, Israel starts out quite well in this paradigm, as evidenced through Solomon's early reign, the wealth, the foreign visitors. However, the nation quickly begins to fail toward the end of Solomon's reign. Israel splits into two kingdoms after Solomon's death, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we enter the period of kings and chronicles, which spans 500 years. The northern kingdom of Israel breaks the covenant first, and the Lord warns the nation of Israel through the prophet Hosea. The book of Hosea exposes Israel, the northern kingdom's breach of the Mosaic covenant in light of Deuteronomy 28, which I referenced earlier. And the Lord ultimately invokes his warnings from Deuteronomy 28 and 2 Chronicles 7 and uses Assyria in 722 B.C., to physically deport the northern kingdom out of the land and to end the northern kingdom, just as he had warned. This should have been a significant warning to the remaining kingdom of Judah. However, Judah continues in its arrogance and disobedience, testing God's immense patience and mercy. 
As the nation exhausts the increasing curses of Deuteronomy 28, the Lord pulls the trigger with the deportation of the exile of Judah to Babylon, which occurs in three waves. The first wave occurs around 605 BC, wherein Daniel is taken to Babylon. Ezekiel is taken in the second wave in 597 BC. And then 11 years later, the third and final deportation occurs in 586 BC, at which time Jeremiah decides to initially remain in the land of Israel. So by way of summary of this long background, what you need to remember are the following. The Lord creates Israel to be a blessing and a light to the world. The Lord promises to bless Israel if they obey, or curse them if they disobey. Israel's obedience would draw the nations to seek the Lord due to his immense blessing on Israel. This was all represented and empowered through the temple and the presence of the Lord's glory in the temple. This finally brings us to the book of Ezekiel, and things will move a bit quicker now. To be honest, for many years I found Ezekiel to be a very intimidating book. With its fantastic and very graphic imagery, contrasted with its monotonous temple construction details at the end of the book. But I am hopeful that the long introduction will help provide a background framework that should help us understand the structure and the purpose of the book. With the background in place, let's pivot and look at the book of the prophet Ezekiel. I think it makes sense to quickly give an overview of the book's timing and structure with some big picture pointers on content. The book of Ezekiel is written in chronological order and starts in 593 BC. Things happen in sequence, and there isn't any jumping around in time. It is linear. The book begins with the famous and extremely vivid passage of God's glory appearing to Ezekiel in chapter 1, the wheels within the wheels. I leave that sermon to Brent. Chapters 2 and 3 outline Ezekiel's calling as a watchman for Israel. And then chapter 4 through 24 record the Lord's charges against Judah. Yes, 20 chapters enumerating Judah's failures. These 20 chapters should be read through the lens of the curses of Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 that I mentioned earlier. And within this section, and with our background preparation around the temple in mind, a hugely significant prophecy occurs in 592 BC in chapter 11, where the glory of the Lord leaves the temple and Jerusalem. When you read this section of Ezekiel, you almost get a sense that the prophecy was received as so preposterous that it was just flat out ignored or rejected by the exiles in Babylon. These 20 chapters of the Lord's anger and judgment culminate in chapter 24, around December 589 BC, at the same time as our passage on Tyre. Verses 24, 1 through 2 read, And the word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. The judgment long warned from Exodus 
Second Chronicles has come. Israel has failed. Something we too know far too well. It's against this backdrop that as a believing Jew in Babylon, your faith would be severely challenged. Remember our opening background. The Lord's glory in the temple represents essentially everything about the nation. Questions such as, is God breaking his promise about the land? Is God's glory really going to desert the nation? Is God giving up on Israel? Is he just finished? Or worse, is he too weak? Will the Lord really do what Ezekiel has been saying? In short, where will our hope come from? And what will our hope be? These questions come crashing through as a reality 18 months later. In 586 BC, when the Babylonians sack Jerusalem, burn it, and destroy the 500-year-old Temple of Solomon. It's in the midst of this doom and despair that it is instructive to round out the book of Ezekiel. Yes, the Lord's anger rings out strongly and aflame through chapters 24 through 33. These chapters cover the final announcement of the siege beginning on Jerusalem and the Lord's prophetic judgment on the seven neighboring nations around Israel. In short, the Lord is done and presses the button, so to speak. It's in this time of deep darkness and despair that Ezekiel receives a, vi- a series of visions during the night. The night before a messenger or the messenger arrives from Babylon to announce the destruction of the temple to the exiled Jews. Scripture is clear. The night before the horrific news hits, the Lord prophesies through Ezekiel, starting in chapter 33, 20, verse 21, to chapter 39, Verse 29, these night visions include Ezekiel 36 and the promise of a new covenant and a new heart, the foreshadowing of the Pharisee, Nicodemus, sneaking off at night to meet Jesus. This highlights both God's faithfulness and his compassion. The timing is truly amazing. Finally, the book ends with long, detailed construction plans for a new temple in chapters 40 through 48, and the glory of the Lord returning to this new temple. With this ending, the Lord emphatically, almost pedantically, reaffirms his promises and covenant commitment to the nation of Israel and Abraham, and indirectly the nations too. Yes, his glory has left, but it will return. So that's a very quick overview of the book. And it is to the nations, and in particular Tyre, that we now turn in Ezekiel. As previously mentioned, Ezekiel 24 climaxes with the shocking prophecy of the besiegement and destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Chapters 25 through 33 immediately pivot to the judgments directed against all the nations bordering Israel. These judgments were given about 18 months before the destruction of the temple but are only implemented after the destruction of Jerusalem. Getting back to our imaginary Tyrian, Jewish remnant, or yourself today, why is this judgment here, and why should we look at it? First up, there is an overarching and clearer reason as to why, and why Tyre. The passage is quite clear 
when the Lord says, the end of verse 6 from our passage this morning, they will know that I am the Lord. He actually uses the same phrase on six of the seven neighboring nations as the conclusion of their judgments. He wants people to understand that he is there. He is the only Lord and ruler. And that and that that has some serious consequences because of who he is. Each nation is judged for its own individual selfish response to the destruction of the temple and the state of Israel. But I think there are some more general themes here too. However, in the context of all we have looked at, and in light of Paul's instruction to us, I would like to draw your attention to a few key thoughts or observations. Firstly, the Lord God is the owner and in control of all nations. Remember, the Lord sends Babylon as the instrument of judgment. Israel cannot resist God's plan, and neither can the nations around Israel. Isaiah already alluded to Babylon's judgment to come a hundred years earlier. Secondly, the Lord is actually concerned about all the nations, not just one select nation. Remember the nations, remember Israel's role was to witness and draw the nations to the Lord. The judgment on Tyre is meant to be an object lesson to the Tyrians too. There was an expectation on the nations to respond to that call too, not just Israel. Thirdly, the Lord has impartial moral expectations on all nations and all peoples. Tyre's primary issue was greed. I refer you to the Ten Commandments. The non-Jews, or in our times, the non-believers, are still expected to submit to God's law too, the moral law. The other six nations are also called out for their own unique moral failings, gloating over the herd of Israel. Think about how we react as people when sometimes we enjoy it when somebody else is hurt. It's the same thing. Indifference to the pain of Israel, lack of compassion, the mocking of Israel, making fun of others, gloating, persecuting. Remember, as Christians, he is now our God too. These types of injustices incurred against us anger him too. We just need to be patient and trust him to make things right in his time. He has not changed. There is a comfort for us in knowing that he sees and remembers all. And in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear. Fourthly, he is true to his word. Remember Genesis 12, 3? It's highly instructive here. All seven nations curse Israel in some form or fashion and celebrate her fall. And so, God curses them back as he promised. He will curse those who curse Israel. There is even an interesting irony here as it relates specifically to Tyre. King Hiram of Tyre was a close ally of both King David and King Solomon. In fact, Hiram provided the cedar wood to David and Solomon that was used to build the temple. 
In other words, Hiram blessed Israel by providing this wood. And over the subsequent centuries, the Phoenician merchant navy empire grew and amassed wealth. In other words, God blessed Tyre. And now, 500 years later, in its wealth and prosperity and unbelief, curses Israel by greedily eyeing up more trade created through the vacuum of Jerusalem, not being there as a trading center. The Lord responds with his own curse. Fifthly, the Lord's plan to redeem the world will move forward despite of man's incompetence, inability, or flat-out resistance. Israel shows us that even with our best efforts and the decks stacked in our favor, so to speak, we cannot do it. The Lord must step in, beautifully expressed in Isaiah 59. Israel shows us that we cannot do anything in our own strength. We are dependent on the Lord. And a final thought here too, is that even though the Lord has allowed the Babylonians to profane his name and trample his courts, he is still very much in charge. And to show that he is in charge, he unilaterally punishes all the nations watching. So there's this idea of how God is dealing with Israel and all the nations are watching. And they're asked questions, is God really that? Is he really all that powerful? And we get the response from him. In conclusion, one theologian describes the events around the Babylonian exile and the first temple destruction 2,600 years ago as akin to a thermonuclear explosion taking place in Jerusalem and the blast radius impacting all the nations around about Israel. This imagery makes me think in eschatological terms how things will end. As a picture, Israel represents the believers who know God or the Christians today. The nations represent the non-believers or the secularists. Someone has spoken, and judgment is coming. Coming for everyone, from an impartial, perfectly moral, unchanging ruler. And this ruler has authority over all the universe, its laws, contents, times, all that is. The judgment will be complete, comprehensive, and absolutely fair. In that day, who will, you, who will be your advocate? In whom will you seek shelter? Or put another way, in the framework of this passage, will you place your hopes in your comfortable lifestyle in this world? Ride out the ups and downs of life and wait to see what happens in the next life? Lean on your inner Tyrian merchant and look for an opportunity to profit from someone else's misfortunes? Or will you take heed? Stop. Think. And see the writing on the wall as the Babylonians experienced in Daniel. And see the Almighty's hand working to draw you to him. Will you turn? To him. Thank you.
heard a description of <coughs> preaching one time that it's basically taking a sermon and, and placing little sticks of dynamite, little sticks of dynamite and just building them up and at the very end lighting it and get the explosion. Well, I can promise you that uh, Bay has set us up for an explosive ending back on the 16th that this is uh, what he's going to show us is how God has, how God has answered and is continuing to answer those those promises and how he is working through history and everything he said will happen happens exactly as he says it and I think that what you're going to be is if you, when you come back when Bay brings us back to this passage is going you're just going to be blessed by his, uh, by his uh, command in this passage and how the Lord is working through history. Speaking of that, as we transition to a time of communion this morning, I'm going to turn to Luke 22. I want to bring your attention to to set this up actually what I want to do is look at Matthew 28 try to tie it to what they just preached and notice in Matthew 28 make our way back to Luke 22, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. The Lord says, starting in verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of now notice all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching the nations to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to, even to the end of the age. Remember what they said about the nations. He said that Israel was to be a light to the nations, and, and we know that they failed in doing so. And that led to, ultimately, their, their exile. But now we have a different command. That as the church, we are to be a light to the nations. But we are to, instead of, instead of the nations coming to us, what are we to do? Go to the nations. See the difference? Now we're to go to the nations. And what are we doing? Well, we're teaching them. We're making disciples of them, and we're baptizing them, and we're teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. Now, what is the, what is the purpose of that, and what are we teaching them? Well, we're teaching them, again, all that he has commanded. We're also proclaiming to him, or to them, the, 
the cross. We're also proclaiming to them the cross, that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life and that he died on the cross, went to the cross and died on the cross, not for his own sin, but for our sins. And that he has been resurrected from the dead. And that he now reigns from heaven, from the throne of God. And again, in Matthew 28, that all authority has been given to him. And we as the church are to go out and proclaim those truths. We proclaim the gospel. And we're teaching the nations. One of the things that we're teaching the nations is that he will come again. He will come again, that he's reigning on high, and that he will return in judgment to set up his kingdom. Now, that connects us back to Luke. Luke 21. What I want to show here Twenty-two, that is. Verse 14. This is the Lord with his disciples just before the cross. Verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat, never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, when we observe communion, we look back at the cross. We look back at the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. But we also need to look forward. We need to look forward. Why do I say that? Because he says here, that he will not partake until the kingdom of God has come or comes. And so the question is, is that Israel was to be a light to the nations, right? Well, the Lord Jesus is going to come and set up that kingdom. And I would argue that In that kingdom, Israel will fulfill the prophecy that they would be the light to the nations. They will fulfill that. Also, the Lord Jesus will fulfill the Davidic covenant. So that's that's the idea of being light to the nation. But the Lord Jesus will fulfill the, the Davidic covenant and reign from Jerusalem. 